Hello, and welcome to this month's episode of the CF Armed Forces podcast with me, your host, James Clark. This month's guest is Richard Holroyd, the Managing Director for Capita's Defence, Fire and Security Sector, where he leads a team of approximately 2,500 people operating across defence, fire and rescue, Royal Navy training, army recruitment and consulting. Prior to this, he worked in senior positions for Centrica, the MOD and BT, following his 23 years of service as an officer in the British Army. We hope you enjoyed this episode. Richard, thanks so much for joining us on this month's edition of the CF Armed Forces podcast. Um, I've obviously, you know, given you a little uh, introduction, but perhaps you could sort of tell us in your own words uh, what you're up to at the moment and a little bit more about your military service. James, certainly. Um, and it's great to have the opportunity to, to talk to you. And in fact, I, I talk to all the major political parties um, uh, at the moment. So um, it's great to be able to talk to the Conservative Friends of the Armed Forces. Um, so I, I run Capita's defence, fire and security business, uh, which also involves a, a, a certain amount of uh, national resilience training. Um, and delivery, so uh, and um, so running across army recruiting, navy training, fire service training, and and loads of other bits and pieces. And maybe we'll come to that later. Um, I, I've been in Capita since uh, um, this January twenty twenty one. I left the army in two thousand and eight. Um, uh, after twenty two years of uh, a boy's own adventure, I commissioned into the uh, Duke of Wellington's regiment um in uh, uh april 1986 um and had a uh, wonderful time a lot of time in northern ireland um patrolling patrolling the streets south armagh west belfast uh, a little bit in east Tyrone uh through the 80s um into the 90s i became as a staff officer in headquarters northern ireland and lisbon uh in between time i went back to sort of uh, waiting for the soviets to turn up uh, across the inner German border, um, which was a lot of our focus at the time. And as that threat receded, I uh, found myself deployed across the world uh, in various guises. Um, I spent some time in Bosnia, uh, where I was a military assistant to Paddy Ashdown um, and to the first uh, Secretary of State for Defence for Bosnia and Herzegovina, uh, which was fascinating, negotiating an arrangement to bring the three forces, uh, previous warring parties of Bosnia together into one single armed force. That was a fascinating um, uh, experience. Um, I spent some time in North Norway um, uh, above the Arctic Circle preparing for Arctic warfare. Um, but also some of my, uh, some of the best um, and, and most exciting time was in 2003, where on the one hand I was um, running the uh, South Yorkshire Fire Brigade during the fire strikes. Uh, we were then um, shifted very quickly to deploy to Kosovo um, and completed our training to, for Kosovo. And then with five days notice, we were diverted to Q8 um, and we were part of the invasion force uh, in Iraq. So that was a um, fascinating um, six or seven month period where we went from uh, running a fire service to preparing for peacekeeping duties and then into war fighting uh, um, seamlessly. Uh, latterly, I um, uh, was involved in a major transformation project 
um, restructuring the infantry and creating new cap badges and things. And I uh, was one of the um, team that founded the Yorkshire Regiment, the Duke of Lancaster's Regiment. And then my I uh, was selected for command and actually opted to command the Military Corrective Training Centre. So I ran the army prisons and detention centres globally um, in a period where uh, we were under a lot of focus, having uh, um, killed a fellow called Abu Musa on operations where our detention capabilities were under the uh, keen eye of the chief inspector of prisons. And so developed a very close working relationship with Dame Anno, who was the chief inspector at the time. And at that point, I decided that um i'd i'd had a boy's own adventure and it was time to go and do something else so um i i resigned um uh joined bt where i was in the global services division subsequently uh in the technology division where i ran um the uk's uh broadband and um uh, uh main networks uh and after doing that for seven years uh it was a fantastic time at bt I spent a very short period of time in the Army, uh, or sorry, Defence Digital Services, what was ISS, has become Defence Digital as the COO. And it was while I was there that I was asked to join Centrica, um, to be the Chief Transformation Officer of the Consumer Division, which includes British Gas, as well as a pile of other uh, brands that you will be aware of and, and a number of brands and energy companies abroad. Um, and that brought me here in um, 2021, having sworn I would never go back into defence, I now find myself running a very large uh, defence um, uh, P&L and um, uh, an account. So, so that's about the height of it, really. So you've so you've led a full life then. <laughs> I mean, up until this point, that's phenomenal. That's an amazing career, you know, set of experience. I, 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 I'm very grey, and I used to be much taller. <laughs> well, the weight of the world on your shoulders is kind of uh, yeah weighing you down. Exactly. <laughs> So, um, I mean, wow, we could probably stay and talk about your military career um, for the rest of the podcast. But um, what, what rank did you leave the military at? Um, I, I left as a lieutenant colonel, lieutenant colonel. Uh, post, post unit command, so, um, the, uh, which was a training unit. So well, the great thing about the military, military corrective um, uh, training centre and detention centre is that unlike um, a lot of uh, other detention and prison capabilities, which are uh, a lot of it's focused on security and what I view as people storage. The um, defence is all about retraining and getting soldiers, sailors, and airmen back to the front line where possible. So it was it was a real investment in people, and that that really flicked my switch. So that kind of rehabilitative rehabilitative justice or kind of that, that element rather than the punishment. Of the yeah, I'm a great believer that in in there are some cases where people are just bad people, but a lot of people have ended up in in a situation they. That they wouldn't have wanted to get to. So, how do you prevent that happening again? And how do you find the best in people in order to uh, ensure they can add add to society? And in, in particular, with um, soldiers, sailors, and airmen that have transgressed, how did we how did we help them back into the front line? Mm. Um, and there's a statistic that says most of the regimental sergeant majors in in the army have all done some time at the military correct training centre. One of the best leadership development schools there is yeah absolutely i mean it's interesting that you you sort of bring that up because some of the best soldiers i know have have you know not always um behave with the values and standards that, that the army um expects of them um, and yet they have gone on to do amazing things 
Um, you know, we, we sort of talked a little bit about um, the sort of the nature of a transition from that kind of kind of, I mean, prison environment, you know, corrective establishment um, environment back into the services. Um, let's talk a little bit about people transitioning from military service out into the world. You know, how, how did how did you find your transition into civilian life? You know, were you supported and, and how do you think things have moved on since then? Um, people often ask me how, and, and if you judge what I've achieved since to be successful, I mean, that's all, all you know, in the eye of the beholder, really. But, um, the people ask me how I've achieved that, and I'm never really sure. So I, I just believe in putting one foot in front of the other and, and just getting on with it. And we'll see how, how, how you get on. And, uh, and it's an attitude of mind, really, which is it's very exciting and lots of opportunities and get stuck in. Um, I found the process, the armed forces process, uh, uh, extremely limited. Um, so the um, career transition partnership um, didn't really prepare me. I was given a whole pile of learning credit uh, to, to figure out what to do with. In the end, I used them to get myself a motorcycle license, uh, right. which meant that uh, um, ACES Motorcycle School took me around Suffolk on a motorbike, teaching me to ride a motorbike and lots of greasy spoon cafes and things. Um, and um, and that was fantastic fun and convinced me I should never ride a motorbike again because I wouldn't survive. Um, so I didn't take that any further. But it was it was it was it was great fun. It was quite amusing being delivered by my staff guard to the to the uh, to the motorbike school and, and stepping out and um, making the tea for the other students who came from every walk of life. Um, so that was that was good fun. But I, I the the military community is extremely strong. So the military network um, really set me up uh, for the future. Lots and lots of people to talk to. Loads of advice. Most of it good. Some of it mildly barking. But but that's the, the way with everything. Um, I um, I got my first job in BT through the network. Uh, and uh, people who understand and can translate what you're able to do and therefore how it fits, that's quite often people's uh, challenge. Mm. Um, a lot of people have to overcome a view of what military people are. Um, there's a view, and I had this fairly recently, about four years ago, a potential employer explained to me that uh, having come from the army, I would be somebody that had to be told what to do and how to do it. And I could only really obey orders and implement orders. And I found that astonishing, given I'd been out of the army and been successful already. But that was a, an attitude of mind. Um, so I think for most of the people leaving the armed forces, whether it's as a private soldier or as a sailor, um, up to a general, it's really how to, how to translate your capabilities in a way that industry can consume. I'm, I met a, a security guard in uh, a town centre in Leeds at uh, Leeds Town Centre the other day, we can identify each other, you know, by our service, just by the way we walk and talk. Mm -hmm. So I picked yeah. up, he was a ex-military. He'd been a staff sergeant in the King's Royal Hussars and therefore w was used to commanding commanding uh, people and operating a, a tank troop of four tanks um, with all the fighting power that comes with that. And he was a security mm. so completely under underused, utilising all his capability. And that's because um, the Career Transition Partnership's focus is how to get people a job within six months. 
not to put them on the right job. And I think we have a duty of care to get people to unlock their potential by getting people into the right jobs. And that means helping them translate what their skills and capabilities are in a way that uh, industry can consume. Mm. Uh, so something I feel massively passionate about, um, the veterans charities, the veterans networks are incredibly powerful and very supportive. Uh, and the fact that it is an issue is reflecting on the fact there are so many veterans charities all trying to help. So if they wanted a key indicator that says we haven't got that right, this would be the key indicator. Um, so I think there's lots, lots to do in that space. Um, um, and how many of my colleagues fall through the gaps? Um, and that's, again, at every level, it doesn't relate necessarily to having a, a post-service issue, uh, you know, uh, post-traumatic issues or anything else. It's simply trying to land in the right place. Mm. Uh, soldiers, sailors and airmen are not out of a cookie cutter. They're all different. They all have different capabilities. They're trying to land people in the right place that they're successful. And then for the employers, and again, something I'm very passionate about, because we, we're, we're members of the Armed Forces Covenant here in Capita, um, is you have to make sure that you transition people in. So the employer has a requirement to, to create the conditions for the service community, for the veterans to be successful um, by, by just helping them understand how things are done around here. Um, and that could be everything from how you claim your expenses through to way, ways of working. Um, and, uh, and in my experience, you know, the military community will jump in and once they understand how it works, we'll get stuck in. But it can be a bit daunting um, when you walk into a room, everybody's speaking a foreign language, you're not sure who's who, you're not sure the person speaking loudest isn't necessarily the person in charge. Um, uh, in the military, you tend to wait until People have finished speaking before you speak. I can't. That's the furthest thing from your mind you'll find in industry. So that whole way of working needs to be translated. And so that transition period is really important. Yeah, I mean, Richard, I think you know you and I have had conversations uh, along these lines before, and I, I've said it at, at conference last year. But one of the one of the most important things is that actually people, you know, people listening to this podcast, people like yourself, you know, we actually get involved and we do try and encourage, you know, colleagues or or veterans to. To come to whether it's a small business, whether it's a, an apprenticeship, whether it's a, you know a week's work experience or a coffee, or whether it's on the kind of schemes that I'm sure, uh, in fact, I know Capita and you know of course BT as well, you know that they provide. You know, it's it's actually about taking that step and and trying to manage and help yourself. You know, doing something yourself, taking action, you know, is 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 vitally important. Um, I'm just going to kind of shift now um, a little bit onto. Uh, the integrated review, because um, you know, obviously, there's there's a there's a review of the integrated review uh, currently uh, going on. But in in the in the iteration of it as it stands, you know, as a recruiter for the army, how can you ensure, and how, how does Capita ensure that it, that you're reflecting policy changes in in the review, so that the actual operation on the ground in recruitment centres is is hiring the people that the army, navy, and air force need. Yeah, look, it, it, that's, a, that's a really topical question. Um, yeah, recruiting is the lifeblood for the armed forces, um, uh, all three services. Um, and you'll be aware that we run all of Royal Navy training. So from arrival at the training gate, training as a new recruit, through to completion as, a, as, as technical training. And of course, for the Army, we then do the attract and, and run the process of recruiting. Um, 
I think that the the initial integrated review talked about upskilling um, a, 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 the army to be a smaller, higher quality organization, reflecting what uh, war and for war fighting would be in the in the third decade and onwards of the 21st century. Um, I think that uh, uh, what we've seen, of course, when that review was written, no, no expectation of a war in Europe, and now we have a war in Europe. So, so the army are quite rightly uh, revisiting what what this means, both in size and shape. When I talk about shape, I'm talking about what skills and qualities are required at each level. So do they still need the same number of cyber specialists? And do they still need the same number of infantry soldiers and gunners? Um, so I think that, yeah, they're doing that the right way. We're in complete support of uh, um, uh, General Saunders and, and uh, CGS and, and, and the rest of his team in trying to fi figure, figure out that bit for them. But in the meantime, trying to retain, run a high-paced recruiting operation. Uh, our biggest challenge at the moment, and I think it's worth reflecting, is that um, that there is not a uh, uh, in this current economic environment where we're at almost full employment. Then the normal the normal way of attracting people into the armed forces was because it was an alternative view of employment and and sometimes career of last choice, not last resort of last choice. Um, now um, the young people that have been in that in that um, in the category available to be recruited have lots of choices. Um, and one of the things I think the army is wrestling with is, is how do we make a career in the army really, really attractive? Mm. So the ability to process recruits into the army is extremely good. Um, it's continually improving new websites, new adverts, new, new, uh, new methods um, to help that process go quickly. Our focus at the moment is how do we create the attraction? And I think this is the same for all three services. How do you you build that desire to serve your country, uh, particularly when when um, the target audience that you're aiming at have lots and lots of choices uh, available to them. So it's a bit of a, a bit of a headache, um, but I think it's a, it's a really live debate, particularly in reserve forces, um, which which are which the UK policy is highly reliant on. How do we? How do we bring that together? Because I think we'll need a, a very strong, capable armed forces of the future. Um, so we've got to join the two, those two things together, convince um, um, the, the young, capable people of the United Kingdom that a career in the armed forces is a great place to be, um, while at the same time shaping that in the right way to, uh, um, to deliver. I had a boy's own adventure. Um, um, I'm trying to make sure that everybody sees the opportunity for a girl's own or boy's own adventure for them. Yeah, and I think that's that's you know massively admirable. And I think I think that kind of has come across in the in the recruiting over the last few years. Um, I, you know, I, I I'm currently working at an OTC, and I see very very motivated young people who are interested in becoming uh, army officers. Um, and and there is absolutely no hard sell for them. Um, but but it is trying to engage people who, as you've said, have so much choice in the world. And actually, the way I look at it is so much distraction. Um, and on on that point, you know, uh, a lot of these, a lot of young people are, I would say, are distracted or certainly have their time, you know, spend a lot of their time on digital media, on social media, um, you know, and whether they're coding and designing apps or whether they're using those apps. 
Um, how how is digital and that the digital the digital environment? How is that being kind of brought into recruitment, and how do you see that kind of affecting recruitment and the armed forces more generally? Well, I I, I think it's something we're, we're we're really alive. You have to communicate with your target um, audience, the, the target recruiting zone, if you like, in the way that they're used to to dealing with the rest of the world. So there is absolutely no point putting you know, large one-page adverts in the Telegraph or Times because that won't fit. You know, that, 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 that cohort largely don't use that sort of media. Um, on the other hand, we use, ad, we use outlets, um, particularly in social media, uh, like Lad Bible, which isn't which is, as the main impresses in Perth, just about, about young men. But we use those sorts of ads where, where people spend their time. I have sons who are 22 and 24. They don't watch terrestrial TV. Hmm. They, they, they watch everything through a device. So we, we are absolutely targeting all our, our marketing and our engagement through those media channels. A lot of it is into social media. We use a lot of regional radio. We use a lot of um, of uh, um, uh, uh, video type content on things like TikTok and Instagram. So where the where the the people that we're trying to recruit operate is where we where we are. Yeah. Um, but there's a second bit to this. So so they also have to be able to run the process that they're used to engaging. So mm-hmm. the days of walking into a recruiting office and meeting a recruiting sergeant have gone. People expect to be able to apply online, and we've got you know the, we've just updated the website and all the rest of it to allow that allow that to happen. What we do know though is that if you're trying to recruit Royal Air Force fighter pilots, you can largely do that through straight through processing. So you can make the process purely digital because you can probably manage most of the aptitude training online, um, and therefore a bit like graduate recruitment that my youngsters are going through elsewhere. You can do a whole series of online applications in order to get people who want to be fighter pilots because that's the thing they really, really want to do. And you can get get them through that with, with sort of zero-touch processing into an interview and do the most of that up front. Conversely, when you're trying to uh, uh, recruit infantry soldiers, um, then it's a, it's, it's a different proposition. And the U.S. Army have been through a bit of this. Trying to go purely digital doesn't, does not help mum and dad who are who are um, inevitably uh, guiding their youngster um, and um, and with all the negative media we see and 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 all the perceptions that people people have then quite often um, we need to put soldiers in front of potential potential um, recruit um, uh, talk to them so they can talk about what the lived experience is really like, what it's really like in training. So you can have as many videos as you want, you can have as much interactive as you want, but in some areas you really need to still have a real soldier to talk to. And that can also be for the community imam who wants to to quiz, um, or the rabbi, or the member of the local youth group, or whoever that young person's um, uh, support network is. So, so it's really important that those are available. So we have to find the right mix. On the one hand, you can use straight through processing with all the latest digital tools. On the other hand, for certain trades and types, you, you, you need to have a mix of digital, a digital process you can engage with, but also real life people that you can, can talk to. And Richard, sort of 
that that kind of is a, is the perfect sort of segue into my next kind of question, which is obviously if you're recruiting people with this kind of hybrid digital and sort of lived experience kind of that hybrid kind of model, when when those recruits then get to training, you know, I'm assuming that that is taken forward as well. You know, I, I for example, know that ULOTC's got eight uh controllers for some sort of i i don't even know what it is playstation 4 or something for call of duty and we're, we're trying to get people onto this and the old and bold like myself have said well this is just computer games and it's a load of rubbish and people have said well you can do pairs far and movement on the computer you can go left flanking you can understand how you bring in artillery onto a position you can understand you know where you want to put your fire support if you're going to go and assault a position and actually you know that kind of you know is that hybrid way of, of of working is that being brought into training as well yeah not not quite the playstation 3 the way you're describing um <laughs> but, but certainly certainly it is and um uh yeah the, the the military have been engaged whether in all three services in in that element of synthetic training for some time um so if you were to go to um hms collingwood you'll find the maritime component trainer where um, each of the operatives from a warship will sit in front of uh, a, a mock-up of the control room um, from that frigate or destroyer, and they will operate together in that sort of environment. I witnessed it the other day as, as, as all the re relevant um, uh, specialists uh, came together to fight the warship, but actually from a classroom in, in HMS Collingwood. Um, and and um, if we look at Royal Naval Training, what we're doing there in order to modernize is firstly picking up the way that young people have been taught at school and college and modernizing the way the Royal Navy delivers its training so it mirrors and is additive instead of a, a step back, frankly, to 1950s ways of teaching that was there up until a couple of years ago. So how do we modernize that? And then secondly, how do we bring in, again, the latest uh, artificial intelligence? So we've been using tools like a BRISM which which creates synthetic replicas on your laptop, which means that you can operate from the from your from your back bedroom in the way you're describing the decompression chamber that goes with being a, di a military dive. Um, so we we've, we've got those bits in place, and that will continue. If you went to the fire service college, you'll see that we use Hololens, which is a Microsoft sort of wraparound set of goggles uh, that allows firefighters to learn. A whole pile of activities in terms of how to enter a room, how to deal with a fire, how to deal with the safety aspect of a fire, without actually having it go into a room where we've created a burning, a, a burning pile of something in order to practice that. So, so we have that at every stage, um, and we're de developing more and more of it as we go. Um, so, it, it it you know it absolutely is bringing the latest technology into training as much as we can. That's fantastic, Richard. I know you're a busy man. Um, I'm, I'm, I'll, I'll probably let you go now, unless there's any any final points that you want to make to our listeners. Uh, no, well, I, having sworn I would never go back near defence, and and got myself firmly embedded in a career in consumer industry. Um, uh, I do find it, uh, uh, you know, coming back is um, it makes you very proud of what we're doing, and the way we work in partnership with defence, and it is absolutely you know, locked together. Um, I think the integrated review talks about how defence has to partner with industry to create an ecosystem. Um, and I do really do feel we're on the journey to do that. Still some way to go. 
um, uh, and I'll leave you guys to sort out the procurement processes. But but in the meantime, I think we're well on well on our way to achieving what the integrated review industrial strategy set up. Richard, that's really kind. Thanks for those final words. Thanks for joining us on this month's podcast. Take care. Marvellous. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this month's edition of the CF Armed Forces podcast. For more information on our organisation, please go to www.cfarmedforces.org. We hope you join us again next month.